Welcome. We come to our talk on the subject of Jesus being the Messiah. Uh, the purpose of this talk is to look at the cutting edge between Islam and Christianity on this very topic. And you might say to yourself, that's strange, that's a Hebrew expression. So Jews expected a Messiah, Christians who believe he is a Messiah, but what's it got to do with Islam? Well, plenty, because the Quran calls Jesus Al-Masihu Isa, <clears throat> the Messiah Jesus. And by just giving him that one word, Messiah, the Quran has exposed the Muslim world to a tremendous amount of Christian witness. You've got a door here to witness <clears throat> just in a single expression that you should use and use effectively. And what I'm going to do is give you the implications of this from a Christian perspective and in the context of the Quranic teaching on it. Who really was Jesus? The Muslim thinks he's just a prophet. We believe he's the son of God. Well, one of the best ways to challenge anyone on this point is to do what Jesus himself did, and that's to ask him this question. Who really is Jesus? In Mark 8.27, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they answered, and this is recorded in quite a few different Gospels, and I'll give you a sort of overall review of the answers. Well, some say you are John the Baptist. And one of the other disciples says, oh, they say you are Elijah. Oh, no, some of them said you are Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, or a prophet. All of those were prophets, Yahya, Ilyas. Jeremiah doesn't have an equivalent in Islam, but prophet of God. So basically the consensus of them was, they're not sure which prophet you are, but there's a general consensus that you are a prophet of God. And so Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? In Mark 8.29, Peter looked at him and said, you are the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah. It's a contrast with the title prophet, because when Jesus heard them all say, you are one of the prophets, not sure which one, but one of them. A new one or one of the older ones come back. And then Jesus said, but, in other words, in contrast to what they're saying, what do you say about me? And so Peter's attitude was, they say you're just a prophet, but I say you're far more. I say you are the Messiah. Now you can see right from the start, something the Muslim needs to know. You find this so often in the Quran. It makes statements about Jesus and so many things but actually on inspection are paralleled in the Bible, but they contradict Islam once you look at them carefully. And here's the example. So the implication here is you are far greater than a prophet. You are the Messiah. Just to tell you, the Quran uses this expression, Masih, or Al-Masih, the Masihu Isa, or Al-Masih Hubna Maryam, the Messiah, son of Mary, uses it on no less than 11 occasions. And it never uses it for anyone else. It just freely acknowledges that so often unique features or unique titles for Jesus, not being aware of what the implications are. According to the Quran, <coughs> the angel Gabriel told her that he would be Al-Masihu Isa. And here you have such an excellent opportunity for witness. It comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach or Hamashiach, the anointed one. The Messiah. And the Quran uses the same thing. It doesn't say Masihu Isa, uh, an anointed Jesus, uh, somebody who has an anointing on him. No. Al-Masih, the anointed Jesus. The anointed one, supremely anointed one. 
And you find even the expression Messias, the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Mashiach, in John 1.41 and again in John 4.25, the Christos. Same expression used normally in Greek, the translation. But then even Messias appears in the Greek as a transliteration of the word. Uh, the woman of Samaria in the second quote, John 4.25, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will show us everything. There you have it. You're not just a prophet. Here is an example of an Old Testament prophecy. There's so many of them, but this is an example of why the Jews knew that this anointed one was coming. Zechariah 6, 12 to 13. Behold the man whose name is the branch. For he shall grow up in his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule upon his throne. Now the Muslims can say, but if Jesus was in that sense, the glorious king, somebody far greater than any prophet to come, and that's what the Jewish scriptures say about him, why did they miss him? Why did they not believe in Jesus? And I mean that argument prevails to this day. I've heard it elsewhere. The Jews rejected Jesus because he was too insignificant for them. He was just a sort of uh, itinerant preacher from Galilee of all the lousy places in Israel. Uh, you know, right up in the north there where no good thing could come from which. And uh, they could see that he had apparently he seemed to be able to perform signs and things. I don't know how he did that. But then he got crucified and he came to nothing. So the Jews rejected him. He just was obscure. He was insignificant. Uh, just a short life. Why did the Jews reject him? You see, if he was going to be the great king, couldn't have been Jesus. So the Muslims were inclined, and so other people, by the way, many other writers, to try and write off Jesus as this glorious Messiah King. Well, <clears throat> trouble is that people don't read the scriptures, certainly the Jews of Jesus' time, and he accused them himself of just supposedly knowing the scriptures, but not really being aware of what they really taught. Matthew's gospel starts with a very interesting statement. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I love that expression. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. And for whatever reason, even by Christian commentators and others, it's just glossed over. But the fact that it's right up there at the heading of the gospel has a meaning. The Jews expected the son of David. Fair enough. But you see, the promises about the son of David, the one to come, were like this passage you read of Zechariah. He would be a glorious king. Psalm 89, uh, 1 Chronicles, uh, all over the Old Testament. He would be like Solomon. Solomon ruled over the finest kingdom of Israel that ever existed. Silver he made as cheap as the wood of Shephelah, the Bible says, in those times. Solomon was always the one that the Jews looked back to to say that was the, the, the peak. That was the greatest of the kings. That was Israel at its finest. And so they expected that the Messiah would be the same. When he came, he'd be a king like Solomon. He'd be the son of Solomon. Son was promised to Solomon. So they said to themselves, once the Messiah comes, this is how he will appear. He will bear royal honor. He will sit and rule upon his throne. He will build the temple of the Lord, just as Solomon did. And so they said to themselves, that's what we're waiting for. But they made one big mistake. Another son had been promised first, a son to Abraham. Just as God had said to David, I will give you a son. So he had said to Abraham before him, I will give you a son. 
All the nations will be blessed through him. Same sort of language. But unfortunately, the Jews just missed this distinction. Now, many commentators knew that there was a sort of double kind of prophecy in the Old Testament, and they just couldn't come to terms with it. Because on the one hand, the coming one, the anointed one, the Messiah, was going to be a great ruler. He was going to rule over the uh, house of David forever. He would be established in majesty. And yet they found other passages like Isaiah 53, where the passages clearly teach that he would be missed. He would be ignored. Who has believed our report, Isaiah says in this passage, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And when Isaiah sees what God reveals to him in this passage, Isaiah's immediate reaction is, no one's going to believe this. Who has believed this report of the Lord? And this is how he defines him. He had no form of comeliness that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And that's why Isaiah said, they're not going to believe it. When they see it, they're going to reject him because he's going to come in humility, going to come in relative obscurity. He's going to come appearing to just be one of those people of who you say everything goes wrong in his life. And Isaiah just absolutely shook his head. And that's the problem. The Jews missed the Messiah because they couldn't see that there was a double prophecy to his coming, a first coming and a second coming. Some Jewish commentators had two, uh, sort of not messiahs, but two coming figureheads, a suffering servant and then the glorious messiah. For some reason, they just couldn't put it together and say, it's the same person, but he's coming the first time in relative obscurity and come the second time in great glory. Can't really forgive them too much for this because Isaiah 52, the last verses of that, actually couches the two comings in one passage. It says, Behold my servant, he will prosper, he will be lifted up, he will be very great. That's your son of David. And then it says, But as many were astonished at him, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance. There's your son of Abraham. So shall he startle many nations. Kings of the earth will shut their mouths because of him. Isaiah jumps back to the son of David. Son of David, son of Abraham, son of David. Glory, humility, humiliation if need be, back to glory. Should have seen it. Same person, but a double prophecy to see him coming. And that is why the Jews missed him. They expected a strong national deliverer who would just simply set up a, a, a kingdom in Jerusalem, who would uh, build a temple again, and who would establish God's glory just as Solomon did. And that's what they thought would happen. They couldn't see that it was actually a double barrel prophecy at an incredibly vertical level. A deep down humiliation in suffering and anguish the first time and rejection. Secondly, an awesome glory as the king of heaven itself sitting on the throne of God in the new Jerusalem, which would come when he would return. Not an earthly kingdom, a heavenly one. Well, let's have a look at this title, Almasi, Mashiach. It comes from Daniel 9.25 and in son of Abraham language, not son of David. An anointed one will be cut off. This is what always surprises me, is that the Jewish people took this expression, anointed one, Mashiach, and from that they titled him the Messiah. 
and called him the son of David. But <laughs> Daniel doesn't talk about an anointed one who will sit on the throne of David forever. He talks about an anointed one who's just going to be cut to pieces before his time. Son of Abraham. Anyway, let's have a look at it. The one thing that at the time of Jesus was generally recognized, and you see this again and again, is that whoever he would be, the Messiah would not just be an ordinary prophet. And you find throughout the New Testament scriptures, expression Messiah and Son of God used interchangeably. Uh, whether the original Greek word is Messias or whether it is Christos, I'm going to translate it in each case as Messiah to make the point. Jewish believers use this expression um, interchangeably. Peter, Matthew 16, verse 16. I say you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, interchangeably. Nathaniel did the same. Uh, called Jesus the Son of God and the King of Israel, which is another synonym for the Messiah. John 1, 49. Martha, the sister of Lazarus and Mary, used the two titles simultaneously in her expression of her belief in Jesus. John eleven twenty seven, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, he who is coming into the world. Caiaphas, the high priest, does exactly the same. Matthew twenty six sixty three. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Early Christian writers did the same told you how Matthew begins his gospel, well here's how Mark kicks his off. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It doesn't come clearer than that. John 20, 31. He finishes off part of his message with these words. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. Even though the Jews didn't recognize him at the time, the demons of his time certainly did. They knew Jesus from all eternity. They were also there when Satan was cast down from heaven out of his throne. And Jesus said, I saw Satan cast out of heaven. They knew him. So in Luke 24, 41, they came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. So you can see this unique title, which the Quran unwittingly confirms, confirms the fact that Jesus is the son of God. Now that's not enough. <coughs> you can see elsewhere in the Gospel writers other evidences that it is quite clear that the Messiah would be far greater than all of the prophets. And this is a very effective way of witnessing to Muslim people. John the Baptist is called in Islam, Yahya alayhi salam. Jesus is called Isa alayhi salam. So you'd think that John the Baptist and Jesus, because they lived at the same time, would shake hands and say, how do you do? We're equals, both prophets of God. Maybe we can learn a few things from each other. But actually, John the Baptist didn't. This is what he says in John 8, sorry, John 3, 28 and 30. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I was sent before him. He must increase, I must decrease. John 1, 30, John says again, This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, for he was before me. And as you go on in John's Gospel and even other scriptures, you can see at times in Jesus' own words and in times of the writers of the Gospels referring to him, that they all regard Jesus as greater than any of the prophets who came before him. 
Abraham. <clears throat> Jesus said of him in John 8.56, He rejoiced to see my day. Moses, Jesus said in John 5.46, <clears throat> Moses wrote of me. David, in Matthew 22.45, Jesus said, How is it that the David, if the Messiah is the son of David, how is it that he calls him his Lord? They ask him, or the people of Samaria in John 4.12, and he's up in their area, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? And then Jesus said, well, he said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I'll give him will never thirst. It will come in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Yep, I'm greater than Jacob. And then again the Jews asked, uh, John 8, 57. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died and the prophets died? Well, before Abraham was, I am. Yep, greater than Abraham as well. So all over this uh, John's Gospel and even others, you can see that the teaching is abundant and clear that the Messiah, far greater, the title, Al-Masih, the Quran. I don't think Muhammad realized <clears throat> just what he was giving away when he put that title in the Quran. Because that just immediately takes the person of Jesus to another level. Ibrahim rejoiced to see his day. Musa wrote of him. Dawud called him his Lord. Yaqub, he was greater than him. Ibrahim again, greater than him as well. John the Baptist. John 1.8 says, he was not the light. The true light was coming into the world. John 8.12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So greater than John the Baptist as well. And John confirmed that as we have seen. Uh, Luke 24 verse 44. Jesus said, everything written of me in the law of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets must be fulfilled. Uh, just a carpenter's son from Galilee, an itinerant preacher, came from an obscure part of Israel. Never did any training at Rabbi Gamaliel's school of theology went around living very simply, came into Jerusalem on donkey and one day was crucified, dead and buried and afterwards for some reason all his disciples got wildly excited and spread a religion that just took over the world by fire. Well the reason being quite simply was that all of the previous prophets of God, as Jesus said, foretold my coming. As those two men walked down from the road of Emmaus that day in Luke 20, 24, they were upset. They said, we had hoped that this man would be the Messiah. Really had. He was a unique man. He preached wonderful things he never heard before. <clears throat> he healed people. He did miraculous signs. He had a prophetic character. We just hoped this time it was for real that he was the Messiah. But you know what? Our chief priests and our elders took him and they killed him. And this is the third day that it happened. And to make things worse, all sorts of rumors are going around today that his body's disappeared. Jesus said to them, you know, can you not see it? Everything written of me in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their eyes and their minds to see the scripture. And then he vanished out of their sight and they recognized him. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us when he spoke to us? I love the story of the woman of Samaria because <clears throat> she was not a Jew. She was one of the despised people, a minority in an area the Jews generally avoided between Judea and Galilee. She came from Samaria. And she would go out every day to the well of uh, Sychar and 
It was some way out of the town, but she would go in the heat of the day. She went to avoid the crowds because she didn't have a very good reputation in the city. She'd already had five husbands. She was now living with a man who wasn't her husband. <coughs> so her credibility rating, her CV, didn't look good. But when she comes, the woman was very uneasy to see a Jew sitting there. And she hoped that he would say nothing, not be familiar with her because she feared that if she even conversed with him and someone else came along, the suspicion might go around that she was now really going too far and even associating with someone from Judea or Galilee, a Jew, a despised Jew, as far as the Samaritans were concerned. So she goes with dignity to the well to fill her jar as quickly as possible. And the worst thing happens as far as she's concerned. The one thing she didn't want, he starts to speak to her. And he says, give me a drink. So she decides to take him on. And she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask of me, a Samaritan woman, a drink? You don't have any dealings with us. Why do you do this? And then Jesus said to her, well, if you knew the gift of God, you would ask me and I would give you living water. What's he talking about? So she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. Well, is deep. Where do you get this living water? There come those words, are you greater than our father who drank from this well himself, his sons and his cattle? And then Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him will never thirst. Coming him a well of water springing up to eternal life. She said to him, I perceive you are a prophet. First, she said to herself, this man is special. He's unique. Other men don't talk like this, not Samaritans, not Jews. So she Cords him the title of prophet. But when Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here, she says, I have no husband. Speaks a half-truth. So Jesus said, you're right in saying, I have no husband. You've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. You spoke truly. Now she really gets worried. And the more the conversation goes on, she begins to realize that this man can perceive who she is, can see right into her history, He's certainly got prophetic vision and insight. But <clears throat> when she tries to sidestep the whole thing and she says to him, Sir, and she wants to get away from this penetrating analysis of her own life, she says, Sir, um, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You know, many years ago, Jacob and them, this is where they worship. And now you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Neat sidestepping of the issue. But Jesus then says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming and now is. It has come right now when those who worship the Father will worship him in spirit and truth. For such the Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit. And this woman just begins to wonder. He's going beyond prophetic language. The hour is coming and now is when a new worship will begin. Not in a form of specific forms and rituals and ceremonies but right deep within the spirit and she just wonders something about him just affects her and then she says to him i know that the messiah is coming now oh, we're getting away from prophethood and that when he comes he's going to show us all things and jesus looks at her and he says the very person who is speaking to you that i am i am that messiah so once again you can see that the title Messiah is far greater than just a title of prophet or anything like this. We look here in Luke 20 verses 41 to 44. Jesus said, how can they say that the Messiah is David's son? 
Well, David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a stool for your feet. David calls him his Lord, so how is he his son? And they didn't know how to answer him on this. How could he be both the son of David, descended from him, but the Lord of David, his prior Lord and Master, at the same time? They couldn't answer him, so Jesus gives the answer himself in the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 16. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. In other words, I'm his root, but I'm also his offspring. I came from him, but he came from me. Paradox, but true. <clears throat> so you can see in all these passages that Messiahship, the title, Al-Masihu Isa, just elevates him to a position way above that of just an ordinary prophet, and you have an endless amount of opportunity for witness here. Let's go back briefly to that subject of Jesus being the suffering servant and the key role. He lived in obscurity during his youth. We know next to nothing about his childhood. Only one statement in Luke's gospel of what happened when he went up to Jerusalem to the temple once. Other than that, until he turned 30, we know nothing about him. He lived in humility in the town of Nazareth. <clears throat> And I'm going to quote that verse to you again, the key one, Daniel 9:26. After 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. A clear reference to a sudden end to the Messiah. Now, notice that when Jesus is sitting with his disciples on the last night that he is with them, he's in complete peace. He's quite serene as he talks to them. But he knows full well that that moment has come when the Mashiach, it's just going to be cut off and have absolutely nothing. Everything that has been coming, foretold in Psalm 22, 69, Isaiah 53, of a suffering, humiliated servant of God, living and dying in virtual relative obscurity, is about to come to a conclusion. <clears throat> but to show you the difference between a prophet or any other ordinary human being, <clears throat> I'm going to look at two texts here that just indicate just where Jesus was within himself. John 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. And then John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Well, those are well-known sayings, but I don't know if you've ever noticed two expressions there that are very similar. My peace, my joy. Those are the expressions he uses. You know, if you look through all four Gospels, especially John's, you won't find those expressions anywhere else. Why did Jesus wait until the last night, just before he was about to be arrested, crucified, dead and buried, to talk of his peace and his joy? My peace, my joy. I'll tell you why. Because at this time, nobody else would have had any peace or any joy. Um, if you ever read stories written by people who are employed as hangmen. They always tell you that when convicted, condemned criminals go to the gallows, they say they're dead already, their faces are ashen, their hair's grown white overnight, and they're as good as dead already, <clears throat> traumatized and just absolutely no hope at all. People who know that they're about to face terrible executions, I can tell you one thing about them, the night before they go, they don't know peace, and they certainly don't know any joy. But Jesus waited until this moment to speak of these two things. Never mentioned them at any other time. 
my peace and my joy, because it was at this time that you just wouldn't expect him to have any. But because he was the Messiah of God, he knew that being cut off in the next 24 hours was not going to be the end of all things for him. This was the very hour for which he had come. <clears throat> he had come to bring the redemption of the world. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. That was his joy. Despite everything that was going to happen to him, he could still be at peace within himself and have the joy of knowing that he was about to become the redeemer of the world. He had no other value system in life. John 14, 31, he said, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know I love the Father. No other purpose for living. Isaiah 53, verse 11, When he offers himself as an offering for sin, he will see the fruit of the travail of his soul and he will be satisfied. And that's wonderful. That just shows that the first coming, what the purpose of Jesus was. He didn't come to get acclamation or glory or even as a prophet to gain recognition. Quite frankly, as he faced the cross, it didn't bother him at all that he knew that his disciples were going to reject him and leave him alone. He was prepared to be literally obliterated so that we could be redeemed. That is the whole implication of a Messiah just being cut off and having nothing. It wasn't quite the Jewish concept of the Messiah, but it's strange that when they read about the son of David and the glory of the son of David and the eternal kingship and the authority and the rule and the prosperity and everything else. It's very strange that the Jews of old took that title from Daniel 9.26, Mashiach, and used it as a sort of catchphrase by which they called him the Messiah, when the very title goes with the son of Abraham, not the son of David. Be cut off and have nothing. And this is what the Messiah did. Quite happy to be reduced to nothing. Paul puts it in Philippians 2.5 like this. Have this mind in yourselves that you have in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, was already up there in the glory of his Father's kingdom. Yet he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. That simply means he humbled himself. But, Paul says, uh, he didn't even stop there. He went further. He gave himself over even to death on a cross, allowed himself to be humiliated, something <clears throat> that goes far beyond just humility. Being found in human form, he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. From humility, just becoming human and living in obscurity, to humiliation, being cut off as a condemned criminal and being buried with absolutely nothing. But, and here comes the son of David. That was the son of Abraham. Here comes the son of David. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him, given him the name that is above every name. All things, heaven, earth, under the earth, whatever, worship him and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's your son of David. Let's finish with the glory of God's anointed Saviour. What is the ultimate destination of the Messiah? Well, the resurrection, the ascension were a sign, and Jesus was the only one, according to Islam as well as Christianity, to ascend to heaven. After his ascension, uh, you read, for example, in Acts 2 verse 29, Peter, speaking of David, said, David prophesied, saying, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I shall not be moved. Therefore, my 
heart rejoices, my soul is glad, because you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will allow me to see the joys of life. You will fill me with goodness at your right hand. Just my own translation of the passage. Speaking of this, Peter says in Acts 2.29, David wasn't talking about himself, because his tomb is with us to this day. So also the tomb of Muhammad is with the Muslims to this day. And every Muslim, when he goes on Hajj and pilgrimage, will try to make a ziyara, a journey, and go over to the tomb there as well, and just simply to pay homage to Muhammad. But Jesus rose from the dead, and his tomb, wherever it is today, is empty. The Emmaus walk, as Jesus met those two people, spoke to them, was it not necessary that the Christ should first suffer these things and then enter into his glory? That's Luke 24, 25 to 26. At the time, glory of Jesus was hidden to unbelievers, yet all the prophets anticipated it. And Jesus even said to them, O oh, foolish men, you're so slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11, <clears throat> Peter says, the prophets who prophesied of this grace that was to be yours, they searched, they inquired about this salvation. They asked what person or time was indicated by the spirit of the Messiah within them when predicting the sufferings of the Messiah and the subsequent glory. The son of Abraham coming first, Isaac representing Jesus' death and resurrection, and then the subsequent glory when the son of David will come, who will sit on the throne of God as Solomon sat on the throne of Israel. Subsequent glory. And this is what will happen when Jesus returns. The Muslims say, oh, he's just coming back, not even as a prophet. He's just going to come back as a follower of Islam. Because he asked Allah if he could come back as a follower of uh, Muhammad, and he wants to lead the whole world to Islam. Oh, forget it. Jesus has got far better things in mind than that. Subsequent glory. That's what the Messiah is going to be bringing. Revelation 1 verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, everyone who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Revelation 1.16, John looked at him and saw him. He said his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And he describes him in the kind of glorious terms that Daniel in chapter 7 of his writing describes to the God of heaven and he saw in his vision. With this man, Jesus, all things are vertical from heaven to earth and back to heaven. The cross itself, firstly, being flattened onto the ground, coming to nothing, but then being raised to eternal glory and sitting on the throne of heaven forever. You'll be cut off and have nothing. You'll be brought back and given everything. All things are delivered into my hands, Jesus said. To put it in a nutshell, with respect to Islam, Jesus will not return to follow Muhammad. Jesus will return to judge him as he will come to judge every other human being on earth. On that day, every human being is going to be judged. And if you want to know in this new covenant age what the basic plumb line and standard of that judgment will be, it will be judged by your relationship to Jesus. Ephesians 1, 2 to 23, you find these words. God raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but that which is to come. He's put all things under his feet. He's made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. Prophet of Islam just did not know what a door he opened to Christian witness when he called Jesus Al-Masih. Every Christian has here a tremendous opportunity to say to Muslims, what do you understand by that title? I don't know a Muslim can give anything more than to say that Jesus is the Messiah. But that opens the door for an awesome witness to just what that title means, and I suggest you use it.